Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Raul and Mary Ann. And I think they're both Brother Miguel Rojas's students. Is that right? Both of you take piano lessons from Brother Rojas. So thank you very much for that tonight. That's delightful. And uh, young people, I would strongly encourage you need to sing and you need to learn how to praise the Lord with an instrument. Amen. And uh, it, will, it will do so much to keep your heart encouraged and keep your spirit right. Yes. Did Brooke have her baby? The question just came. Not yet. But we are waiting by the telephone. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Uh, she's due on Friday. And so we'll, we'll see. We, uh, we're excited. So uh, I made some reservations at a hotel next week. So I hope we get to use them. Amen. <laughs> so we have a place to stay. Uh, so anyway. All right. Let's take our Bibles. Turn tonight to Proverbs 17. And let's see if we can finish the chapter tonight. You want to? Proverbs 17. How many of you think we will? Say amen. Okay. All right. I get it. <laughs> uh, I, was, I asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. Lord, we love you. We need you. Bless the study of the word of God to our hearts. These are eternal truths, Lord, and oh, how we need wisdom in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 17, verse 22. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But a broken spirit drieth the bones. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. But a broken spirit drieth the bones. The Webster's, in describing uh, the word merry, uses words like jovial, laughter, hilarious, delightful, pleasant. So a, a, a jovial heart, a heart filled with laughter, a pleasant heart, a hilarious heart, a delightful heart or spirit, if you will, is good like a medicine. Let me just give you a simple statement, and it's an admonition. Keep a cheerful disposition. Keep a cheerful disposition. Keep a cheerful disposition. You know, this verse says that cheerfulness is healthy. How many of you want to be healthy? Amen? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, uh, listen, I'd rather smile than quit eating donuts. Amen. <laughs> Somebody say amen right there. I know I need to do both. I know I need to do both. But anyway, that smiling part, now I can do that. Amen. And the Bible says it's healthy. It's healthy. It's good like a medicine. Uh, someone asked uh, Oswald Smith, a great pastor up in Toronto, Canada, built people's uh, the People's Church and great. They gave many decades ago were giving away a million dollars a year to missions. Wrote a lot of songs, a lot of gospel songs. And someone asked him, "What's your favorite song that you wrote?" And he said, "There's joy in serving Jesus," and that was his favorite of his hymns. Um, we ought to keep a, a cheerful spirit. Now, you know the Bible's true, and science seems to always be catching up with the Bible. Uh, but as we study more and more uh, uh, hormones and, and what they do to our body and, and to our spirit and our attitude, we learn more and more science is teaching us that a healthy spirit makes for a healthy body. Let me quote a couple of medical doctors. Laughter is absolutely the best medicine as it charges the immune system and triggers the relaxation, relaxation response. 
In this stress-filled world where 75 to 90% of all visits to primary care physicians are for stress-related complaints or disorder, disorders, laughter stops stress in its tracks. That's interesting, isn't it? I did a study a couple of years ago and taught some lessons, especially in chapel, on the subject of some in our Sunday school class. But the number one killer of Americans is heart disease, and that's brought on primarily by stress. And, uh, uh, and uh, so uh, it's deadly, and a good dose uh, for stress-filled lives is a merry heart. Amen? A merry heart. Where's, is Mason here tonight? Mason, come up here real quick. Do what you did in chapel today. Can you do it? Can you do it from there? I got him scared out of his mind. Bless his heart. Here's what we did in chapel. Do you mind doing it where you're at, do you? Okay. Just stand up there real quick, right where you're at. And uh, he's, he's hating me right now. And I said, I said, Mason, I want you to try to smile. See if you can do it again. Try to smile. Look at that. He did it. Amen. Now I want you to try to, uh, try to act disinterested. You ever meet, thank you, you ever meet somebody that's trying to act bored? Trying to act like they don't care? And then he glanced around to see if anybody notices. <laughs> Why does he try to smile? Amen? You know, uh, over and over again, the Bible says, be glad, be glad, be glad. And you can choose to be glad. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and you know, it don't cost you anything. It's not covered on your insurance plan, but don't worry, it doesn't cost you anything. Amen. You can smile. Uh, Francisco Contreras, a, a surgical oncologist, here's what he said. Fear is the stronghold of cancer. Cancer is an opportunistic disease. Fear and other negative emotions are detrimental to the immune system. Immune system. Depression and anxiety are open invitations for cancer to have its way with a patient. When we are able to help a person smile and laugh, we increase the possibility of remarkable, of recover markedly. One of my goals is to help patients get to a place where they can stare cancer right in the eyes and say, you cannot rob my joy. That's pretty good, amen? Sounds like a preacher to me. Science has definitely confirmed the healing factor of laughter. Patients who experience laughter receive a boost to their immune system as measured in the elevation of natural killer cell activity. And I practiced this uh, last week, but I didn't practice it for tonight. Immunoglobulin. You're not impressed. I just, that was a big word I just gave you. Thank you. Uh, uh, so patients who experience laughter receive a boost to their immune system as measured in the elevation of natural killer cell activity and immunoglobulin. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I think it's a word. At least in the doctor's vocabulary it is. Science confirms that positive emotions invoked by humor have healing effect. Let me give effects. Let me give the anatomy of a laugh. Here's what happens when you laugh. All right? Your heart and lungs are stimulated. Next, your heart beats faster and your blood pressure rises temporarily. Laughter improves the function of blood vessels and increases blood flow, which is protection against a heart attack. Next, you breathe deeper and oxygenate more blood. 
Your bo- next, your body triggers the release of endorphins. I mean, if you've heard of that, uh, of endorphins, endorphins are the body's natural feel-good chemicals. They are natural painkillers and promote an overall sense of well-being. Uh, a good, hearty laugh relaxes the whole body. It relieves physical tension and stress and leaves your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, We've had some late nights at our house lately, and uh, I don't remember what night it was, but I got home pretty late, and Stacy was still up studying for some wicked teacher's, um, some wonderful teacher's <laughs> test, and she said, Dad, can you help me study? I said, sure. Well, I went to my chair. That was a mistake. I went to my chair. It was, I think it was spelling words. Who's your spelling? Who's your teacher? Miss Shiflett. Yeah, it figures. Uh, <laughs> but... Anyway, so here I was, I was trying, and literally, I, I, I read about three of them, and I started losing it, you know. I'd open my eyes, and I'm st- staring at the page, and nothing's coming out. I'd look over, this Stacy's looking at me, smiling, you know. So I wake and shake myself, and give another spelling word, and, and literally, I, I literally, it is, I know this is embarrassing, and I should be embarrassed by this, but anyway, I was, I was making myself laugh, falling asleep. I literally, and I was conscious that I was doing, I don't know how that is, I was conscious that I was falling asleep trying to give spelling words, I'd give a spelling word, and then I would be out cold, and as she says that I would give a word and then start snoring, I don't, I don't think I snore. Do not ask Mrs. Shook about that. But anyway, I didn't remember snoring. Uh, and I would get so tickled that I fell asleep that quickly. I'd laugh. I'd think, oh, I told her, I saw I'm awake now, boy. My heart rate's up and my blood's flowing. I gave one more spelling work and I was out cold again. This thing about relaxation, it's real. Amen. <laughs> Laughter put me to sleep. Um, anyway. Where was I? Uh, uh, Laughter produces more immune cells. It decreases stress hormones and increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, thus improving your resistance to disease. And this is my favorite one. This is the last one. Here it is. This is the anatomy of, of, of a laugh. When you laugh, you burn 78 times as many calories as you would in a resting state. I am going to start a business, a weight loss business. It's going to be watch 10 hours a day of I Love Lucy and Andy Griffith. Amen. If I come back skinny in a month, you're going to, you're going to believe me. <clears throat> Now, here's the sad thing, because the verse doesn't just say uh, that uh, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but it also says a broken spirit dryeth the bones. So the opposite is true as well. Cheerfulness is good for you physically, and grumpiness is bad for you physically. And that's Bible, amen? Adam Clark goes way back. And his commentary said, nothing has such a direct tendency to ruin health and waste out life as grief, anxiety, fretfulness, bad tempers, etc. All these work death. 
I was reading in uh, what great men taught me in the book today and reading about uh, some of those great men. And uh, you know what? The, the men that I was thinking about, the men that I know and love and admire, they're cheerful men. They're cheerful men. They're happy men. Yeah, I've never met, I don't know if I've ever met a, what I would think of as a great man, greatly used of God, I could say it that way, who was a grouch. <laughs> but they're pleasant men. And uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. Sean Williams, is, uh, I forgot how old he is. He's old. Uh, we, we, we've done this in chapel, have we not? Uh, he'll come to chapel. And I'll say, Dr. Williams. I say, uh, tell us some uh, animal jokes. And he can stand there for, he can rattle off a dozen animal jokes. And then I'll say, tell us some airplane jokes. And he'll, I mean, literally, he's got a photographic memory. He'll stand there and tell a dozen airplane jokes. How many of you have witnessed this and pastor's not making this up? This is true. Okay, thank you. Uh, but these are, these are happy men. These are cheerful men. These are pleasant men. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is first of all what? The fruit of the Spirit is first of all what? Love. If you get filled with God, if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a command, by the way, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit when you get saved, but you're commanded. You and I are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, and, and uh, we're, we're out of our bellies flow rivers of living water, the Gospel of John tells us, means that there has to be a constant intake and out. Out, out go all right so when you witness when you love when you pray for others when you encourage others you're giving you're spending your spirit man and if you don't go in prayer and get a hold of god and get in this book and get filled again you have nothing to give if you take in and take in and take in and never get up you come like a pond you become dissatisfied you stink and have green scum over your life but if you try to give out without going you just dry up there's some Christians at stake and there's some dried up Christians. Spirit fullness is constantly going to God. I feel me, please give me your spirit. What is that? That's, that is born out with, first of all, love. If you ever get filled with God, you won't have any. I just don't like so-and-so. That's going away. Because when you get filled with the spirit, the first thing that happens is love. You love people. And uh, young people, you ought, to, you, you, you ought to get a hold of this thing of craving and yearning and longing and begging daily for God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Man, you talk about, any spiritual person is just incredibly refreshing. But a young person that's filled with the Spirit is such an amazing thing. The opportunity to show genuine love. And, 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 and anyway, but after love... The first thing that happens is you, just love, you start loving people. You get filled with the Spirit, you love people. The second thing that happens is what? Love what? Joy. Joy. <laughs> Joy. Now, you look in the mirror. If you're a grown-up, you know one thing. You're not filled with the Spirit. You're not. Because if you feel the Spirit, you're going to feel with what? Joy. Love. Joy. Peace. Lists in the Bible are important and, uh, and, the, and the order of the list are important and significant. And so first thing happens, you love people, and then you fill with joy. Um, listen, here's a fact. You can choose your disposition. You can choose your disposition. You know, listen now, listen now, listen. Listen to pastor, listen. There's much been written on the study of uh, personalities and so forth like that. There's certainly merit in studying human behavior. And there's things to be learned from that. 
But don't derive from those studies that I am what I am and I just can't help it. Now, that's not biblical. No, sir. If the Bible says be glad, then you can be glad. <laughs> God doesn't give commands that can't be kept through his help. And so uh, you can choose. You can choose your disposition. Uh, Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy. Amen. Amen. In Psalm 9, 2, he exercises his will. He says, I will be glad and rejoice. Psalm 31, 7, I will be glad and rejoice. Psalm 104, verse 35, I will be glad in the Lord. Psalm 118, 24, this is the day which the Lord hath made. Finish it. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. That's an act of the will. You can choose to be glad in this day and to rejoice. Um, In the last few pages of Brother Roloff's um, biography, I read a story I've I've never heard before in my life. The state of Texas came after him, and this was a constitutional matter. The right uh, freedom of speech and the freedom of religion, the right to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience and to obey the word of God is a cornerstone freedom of this country and it's being eroded left and right every single day. And one of those landmark issues was way back decades ago when Lester Roloff opened homes, People's Baptist Church began to open ministries and the ministries they started were helping people that were on dope and alcohol and started housing people and helping people and finally the state of Texas says you can't do that without our permission he said no I, I, I got a command to do this I'm supposed to go in and help the poor the maimed, the halt the blind I'm supposed to love sinners this is, what the, this is my bible mandate they said no you can't do that without our permission and the state there was a many year long battle between the state by the way that thing finally went to the Supreme Court and it was lost Brother Olaf was already in heaven by that time. But ultimately it was lost and, and, and freedom was eroded. Brother Olaf went to prison, went to jail several times because he refused to submit and said, no, you cannot. If you, listen, if, if, you, if somebody can license a church in its ministry, then they can withdraw the license. If you have to have permission to do something, then that permission can be withdrawn. And uh, anyway... Uh, but I, I never, I never knew this story. But at the end of his biography, a lady had called and said, "Rodolf, I'm a widow. I don't have that much longer to live, and I want to do something to help reach the people that are broken that you're reaching." And and, and uh, in in his defense, dozens of, well, many judges sent letters on behalf of Brother Roloff to help in his defense, talking about. They would literally send people from the court. So you, you got two options. You go to jail or you can go to the roll-off homes. And, and many judges believed in what they were doing, and it was, they were very successful. Uh, but anyway, in all that battle and trying to keep the doors open to the homes, a lady called, and she said, I, I've got uh, hundreds of acres, uh, uh, and uh, I want, to, I, I want a, a, a boys' ranch here. I want to help troubled boys. And, uh, and she said, I, I, I want to give this to the Roloff Enterprises. And I want, and so uh, the, a board was formed, and she donated the property. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, and they began to uh, hire a couple, uh, someone donated some cattle, and they put that on the land. 
And then uh, a couple came and they surrendered their life and they put a little mobile home on it and they began to lay out plans, began to design the property and where the homes were, where the boys would live and so forth like that to salvage uh, broken lives. And, uh, and as they were in the throes of preparing that, uh, as they began the beginning stages of that, he, he went to, uh, he went to uh, the state and actually his biographer went to the state, was part of the board, and applied for a license from the state of Texas for this home. While he's in a battle for not taking a license. And, um, and um, so they said, well, they started getting preliminary information, a preliminary form to fill out, and said, who's going to be, uh, you know, uh, who's uh, asking for this license? And... Uh, and they said to uh, roll off evangelist, evangelistic enterprises. He said, who? He said, roll off evangelistic enterprises. He said, you might as well stop filling that paper out. You're not getting a license. He said, why not? He said, because evangelistic enterprises, roll off evangelistic enterprises uses the Bible. We don't believe that. And you'll never get that thing. You'll never get that thing uh, through. He said, well, he said, you haven't been very helpful, but you've been frank. And I do appreciate that. So he went back and told uh, Brother Roloff. Brother Roloff said, well, we're going straight forward. <laughs> we, we asked, and uh, we, we can't compromise on that. If we can't use the Bible, we won't, we won't have a home. So they went and plowed ahead and, uh, and began to make plans and so forth like that, even without the license and the approval of the state of Texas. And the, the lady who had made the donation called <clears throat> this brother, who's a biographer, and said, uh, I've learned some awful things about Lester Roloff. And so men came to see me, and I did not know he's a crook and a thief, and I just signed over all my properties to him. i got to get it back. And the gentleman said, man, who told you that? He said, well, these five men came to, came to my house, and they told me all about him, and I, never, I didn't know all that stuff about him. I didn't know he was a crook. I didn't know he was a liar. I, I didn't realize he was a thief, and I... I, I, I he said, well, what do you want me to do? What? Uh, she said, well, I'm going to get my property back. I, 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 I. And he, he said, well, ma'am, uh, who are these men? He said, oh, I, I, I don't want to say. I don't want to cause any problems. He said, well, why did you tell Brother Roloff? She said, oh, no, I don't want to talk to him. He'll talk me out of this. <laughs> he said, let me get this straight. These men came to your house, told you this about Lester Roloff, and and, uh, and now then you want the property back. She said, yes. And I don't want to talk to Brother Roloff because he'll talk me out of it. He said, well, I'll let him know. And that dear brother went back to Brother Roloff and said, uh, and the lady, because she was a donor, she was on the board. There was a board that governed the ministry. And, of course, Brother Roloff was on the board. And he said, that, that's an impossible situation. She said, if she believes my critics, then there's, there's no way we can work together. He said, you call her and tell her within the hour, I'll be at the attorney's office and we'll turn it all back over to her. And he turned all that property back over. 32 years later, at the writing of his biography, never the first building or anything was put on that property. And the man went back to her and said, he's going to turn all over. He said, by the way, she said, she told him, she said, I found somebody, I found somebody who's going to put a boy's home there. And I need, I'm older, I need to get it done. He said, uh, by the way, by chance, the people that are going to put the boys home, does that happen to be the same man who came to tell you about Brother Roloff? She said, well, yeah, it does. He said, that's what I thought. <laughs> and nothing was ever done. Now, here's, here's the point I want to make. 
Brother Roloff never criticized that. He did not personally make that public. He did not defend his character to those men. He just kept on going, loving the Lord, shouting the glory. Amen. With the same spirit he always had. Listen, let me help you something. If If you're a grouch, you listen to me. Here's what you think. You think the people that are smiling, that everything goes good for them. What you don't know is that some of them have greater heartaches than you have. What you don't realize is some of them have greater burdens to carry than you have. They just happen to believe the Bible. They just happen to believe that you can choose your disposition. You can choose to be glad and you can choose to rejoice. Amen? Amen. Verse 23. You ready? A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Judgment here is justice or a a judicial decision. A wicked man taketh a gift. Come here, Doc, come here for just a minute. Um, Taketh a gift, let me demonstrate, out of the bosom, okay? In other words, it's like, In other words, it's a sly transaction. You understand that? You know, it's kind of, right? It's not out in the open. Here you go, buddy. In other words, it's uh, under the table, whatever. Brother, uh, brother uh, uh, Ed Lorraine, I was in the Philippines down there. I said, what's the government like? He said, oh, it's corrupt, 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 corrupt. He said, you know, in Mexico, uh, he said, uh, he said it's, uh, it's, it's under the table. He said, in Japan, it's, it's on the table. He said in the Philippines, it includes a table. And uh, anyway, but uh, anyway, but he's talking about a bribe. So here, give me, let me give you this statement. Honest people can't be bribed. Honest people cannot be bribed. It is absolutely wicked to, to stand up and, and present yourself as a man of principle and then change your vote because of a pressure or because of favoritism or some potential. Our, our nation, <laughs> do you know, do you, well, I better not get, I'll get off on that. I'll be there all night. Um, it's wicked to promote a piece of legislation, change your position, change your vote, show favoritism because of a gift. That's exactly what got Naboth killed. Naboth was killed because somebody paid under the table, uh, bosom to bosom, if you will, some men to stand up and lie about Naboth, and Naboth was killed as a result. Look at verse 24. Wisdom is before him that hath understanding, but the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. Wisdom is before him that hath understanding. In other words, look at it for just a minute. Wisdom is before him. In other words, it's right in front of him. But the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. This is the fool. He's always looking out over there, looking somewhere else, thinking that wisdom and that's going to help him get ahead in life is all out there somewhere. And what he doesn't stop to think is is there's wisdom right in front of him. So here's here's the statement for you. Young people, write this down. Develop an eye for wisdom. Develop an eye for wisdom. I can see a hawk. I've developed an eye for it. I enjoy looking for them. I enjoy looking for birds of prey. Saw a beautiful eagle uh, the other week, uh, and um, going down the uh, bypass the school. 
I love to look for them. I, I watch for them. Now, some of my buddies can spot a deer and I can stare right at it and not even know it's there. I'm getting better at it, but uh, some people can spot them. Uh, but you know what? If you look for something, you learn, to, you learn to see it. When you look for something, you can start to find it. Uh, how many of you know those? Uh, you know what a stereogram is? It's a 3D picture inside of another picture. How many of you know? It just looks like a pattern. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And you stare at it. I look at it, you know, and kind of move it away from you a little bit. And if you stare at it long enough and get halfway cross-eyed, then all of a sudden this picture appears. And how many of you uh, go bazonkers trying to look at those pictures and you can't find them? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm not the only one. But if you learn to look for it, you can find it. And that, that's what the Bible is saying about wisdom. If you understand wisdom's value, Wisdom is better than gold. Wisdom is rather to be chosen than silver. If you understand its value, then you're going to be on the lookout for it. And young people, listen to me. Don't you fall into this. Don't you fall into this. That somebody out there somewhere has got all the smarts and all the brains. Wisdom is right in front of you. Wisdom is, boy, the indoctrination camps we call Ivy League schools has been exposed in the last few months. The president was at MIT, Yale, Harvard, I think. I think this. They absolutely, they, they, they have exposed themselves. And those, I don't know how many thousands of dollars you pay to go there for a year, but their indoctrination camps is what they are. Now, you say, well, I'm going to go off to so-and-so and get all the wisdom. Let me tell you, there's plenty of wisdom right in front of you right here, kids. In your own family, in your own church. There's opportunities. Russell Conwell was a, a pastor and a, just a great man. Wrote a little book on Acres of Diamonds a few years ago. I gave it to all you men. I hope you read it. Let me remind you about a couple of stories in there. 1847, a man in Northern California sold his ranch because gold had been discovered in Southern California. He sold it to Colonel Sutter. And, uh, and uh, uh, he, he went, to, went south. Colonel Sutter's little daughter got some sand at a, uh, where the water ran. She scooped a little sand up and she came in by the fireplace and uh, was playing with it. And somebody, a, a friend was over at the house <laughs> and said, uh, and he went over there and started looking at the sand and there was gold there. <laughs> The man uh, sold, sold that piece of property in, uh, in 1847 and to go look for gold in Southern California. Sixty years later, in 1906, that mine was still producing $360 million a year. Sixty years later, they were still pulling gold off that property. And... Uh, 12.6 million, uh, uh, excuse me, four, uh, uh, 360 million per year. Never mind. Anyway, uh, here's another one. The man in uh, Massachusetts uh, was making uh, $15 a week and uh, he wanted to get into mining. And so he uh, went to school and started learning about mines and mining and, 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 uh, and, uh, got offered a job of $45 a week, and he actually was a good student, and in his last 
year of school, they offered him a professorship and said, look, we'll pay you $45 a week. You're such a good student. You can teach some of the underclassmen. And when he found out it was worth $45, he said, he went home towards his mom and said, I can do better than that. And he turned the job down, <laughs> knucklehead. And he told his mom, he said, you know, there's mines in Wisconsin. I can go up there and get me a job. Well, he sold the property and went up to Wisconsin and uh, worked for a mining company for $15 a week and an interest in any mines that he found, that he helped find. But he never found a mine, and the man he sold the property to was working out in the yard one day and started studying the rock wall right where the gate was. You go in and out every day. And he started looking at that rock wall. He's like, there was an eight-inch block of native silver in the rock wall. $100,000 worth of silver came off that property. You know why? That man thought, he thought it was out somewhere else. Young people, listen, you value what God has given you right here under your nose. In Pennsylvania, a man had, uh, had a uh, cousin who worked in the, in the, the first uh, coal on this continent was found in Canada. Uh, excuse me, oil was found in, in Canada. And uh, he had a cousin who was in the oil business. And he said, I want to, uh, uh, I said, I want to work for you. He said, man, you don't know anything about that. You don't know anything about the oil business. He said, well, I'm going to learn about it. He said, okay. He said, well, you learn about it, then you can call me back. And he spent a significant amount of time. He learned everything he could about the oil business. I mean, he, he, he knew what it looked like. He knew what it smelled like. He knew what it tasted like. And he called his cousin and said, I know the oil business. He said, come on, I'll give you a chance. And he sold for $833 his Pennsylvania farm and went to Canada to work for his cousin. The man that came by bought it for $833, put cows on it. And the cows, there was a little brook behind the barn, and the cows wouldn't put their nose in the water because there's this black scum on the water. And he noticed somebody had put a plank there, and it had fallen over, and he, and he lifted the plank up, and it, it diverted the black scum so the fresh water could come by, and then the cows would drink. He got looking at that black scum, so I wonder what it is. Tell you what it was, it was $100 million worth of oil. The state of Pennsylvania, when it was discovered, valued it at $100 million. Later, they changed their evaluation to $1,000 million, a billion dollars worth of oil, and he sold it for $833. What I'm saying, young people, is this don't scorn the opportunities right under your nose. You're not smart if you're too smart to listen to your own mom and dad. Verse number 29. I'm sorry, verse number 27. Let's read 27 and 28 together and we'll finish with this. And this will finish the chapter. Hallelujah. You ready? He that hath knowledge spareth his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Let me give you two words for these two verses. Speak sparingly. Speak sparingly. We studied back in Proverbs 10 that in the multitude of words there is no lack of sin. There wanteth not sin. 
Idle, unplanned conversation always goes downhill, not most of the time. Idle, unplanned conversation will deteriorate into gossip. And so the Bible says, let your words be few, Ecclesiastes 5.2. Young people, learn to conserve your words. Learn to use your words sparingly. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. People that know what they're talking about don't prattle on and on about things. People who really know conserve their words. Even a fool, when you holdeth his lips, is counted wise. Listen, if you don't know anything about a subject, just keep your mouth shut. Just go, hmm. And people think, man, that guy's got some wisdom. Amen. Let me give you some occasions that you ought to use your words sparingly. Number one, when you first meet someone. I'll try to teach you something about being appropriate young people. Listen, Pastor, very carefully tonight. When you first meet someone, don't prattle on and on. Don't talk continually about yourself. Show an interest in the other person. A first meeting, uh, uh, you, you don't, uh, you're not too familiar. You're kind. You're cordial. You may tell something about yourself. You may ask something about the other person. But don't meet someone for the first time and spend the next 15 minutes talking about yourself. Number two, spare your words when you're unsure about something or when you're just plain ignorant about something. Don't speak like you're the authority on a matter when you're not the authority on the matter. When you talk about things you don't really know much about, like you know all about them, you might be talking to somebody who really does know something about them. And the more you talk, the more foolish you look. Wise people spare their words, the Bible says. So wise people aren't impressed by prattlers. Don't try to impress others by giving opinions when you don't really know much about what you're talking about. Um, here's another occasion. Uh, spare your words. Listen to this. Don't miss this, kids. Spare your words when you're afraid. Let me give an example. Mark 9, 6 says, For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. He didn't know what to say. They were afraid. Well, when you're afraid, kids, look at me. Keep your mouth shut. I'm helping you right now. All right, Mr. Cook, Mr. Principal, come here. How many of you, how many of you, Mr. Cook's awesome, right? Somebody say amen. amen. How many say he can also be scary sometimes? Some of you know by example, know by experience. So if Ms. let me help you some. If Mr. Cook comes up to you and says, uh, what you doing there? What are you doing there? Uh, I just, I'm just, I'm just going to look. If you got any sense whatsoever. Fifth Amendment. <laughs> you got some practice in that, don't you? Here's what you're going to do. Look, if somebody comes and say, uh, you know, you're not... Uh, Give me a rule, class rule. Can you chew gum in class? Um, uh, another rule then. I <laughs> uh, can't talk in class. All right. Have you been talking in class? No, no, not me. Now, if you stop for a second and think, uh, you, just made, you just made that much worse. If authority has to come and call you on the carpet about something and you're scared, I'm scared I'm going to get in trouble. Now, you stop. You think before you open your mouth. Number one, you, first thing out of your mouth, first thing is just it's your old Adamic sinful nature. <laughs> we all have it. 
First thing you'll do, you're going to lie about it. Guess what you did? You just made it much worse. Now, first of all, understand God's put some people in your life who love you and care about you. If they come to hold you accountable, stop. Don't run your mouth. Stop and listen. Process this thing right here. Let it work a little bit. And then open your mouth. Thank you. Um, 16 times the Bible says, be of good courage. So use courage in the right way. Have good courage and speak the truth. Um, let me give you another time. Spare your words when you're around older people. There's so much, I'm glad you kids went to the nursing home today. There's so much wisdom in the halls of a nursing home. There's so much wisdom around older people. Also, when you're around someone who is your superior, someone who's more knowledgeable. Okay, there are areas in this, uh, in, in the congregation where, uh, where I would be superior to some of you men in certain areas, and you men would be my superior in another area. Uh, for example, uh, but I can't think of any areas where Brother Hamilton is superior, but, uh, but <laughs> there are certain things that I don't even try to understand. I call Brother Ham, I'll call Brother Jerry. I don't even try to understand. something I don't try to understand. I'll call Brother Will. I'll call this person. i call that person. Uh, I, 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 I don't want anyone to pretend like I know what I'm talking about. And, and, and so, young people, when you're around somebody who knows something, that's the time to listen. It's not time to try to one-up somebody, but uh, defer to those who are superior in that area. Here's another time. When a conversation becomes critical, close your mouth. When a conversation starts going south, close your mouth. And then keep it shut until everybody feels the awkward silence. And they all know that you're not chiming in. Amen? Now, uh, don't go along with it. Sometimes you can change the subject. Sometimes Miss Rojas was good at this as a teenage girl. She was great when somebody say something a little negative, like Mr. Cook or somebody like that, say something a little negative. <laughs> She was good. I've heard many times. She said, oh, that's not true. She said something like that. She did it lighthearted. She wasn't critical of the other person. But she was great about that. Let's get off this subject. Now, now, young people, listen. Don't you chime in. Somebody starts eating somebody else up and spitting them out. Don't you chime in. Don't you. You can change the subject. That doesn't work. You say something positive. That doesn't work. Close your mouth. And somebody says, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Just go. Amen? Why should you feel bad because somebody else is destroying somebody else? Make them feel bad. Amen. They ought to feel bad. And here's the last thought. Spare your words when it is inconsiderate of others. We, young people, listen. I, I want you to have friends. I want you to have conversations. But, but, but don't mindlessly dominate any conversation. Be considerate of people that are around you. You ought to be aware uh, and if you're in a conversation, you can't pull somebody in with you. Uh, it's certainly appropriate to be excited if you have some good news to share. Uh, but you ought to be considerate. And I'm not saying change your personality. I know some people are naturally more bubbly than others. I'm not trying to change anybody's personality. 
But I, but I am saying that we should be considerate of others. Look, let, let, can I help you with something? If you see two people in a church and they're standing over there and one of them's weeping, don't walk up and pull on someone's arm like you got an emergency. You know, these people that sit in this room tonight just be huge burdens. And you say, well, I just need something real quick. You're selfish. Do you hear what I just said? Open your eyes. Look, observe. I'm not saying what you have is unimportant. I'm not saying that. But evidently, if someone is standing there and they're weeping, there's probably something going on in their life, and we ought to be considered of that. Does that make sense to everybody? And the Bible says the wise man, he spares his words. And uh, we ought to do the same. Let's stand together. How many voted that we were going to finish the chapter? All right. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for these practical thoughts from this chapter.